0: Again, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, chapter 4, so you can see it yourself. I'll be reading verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let's pray. Father, cause this command to reign in the hearts of your people. Central, central to our walk. Let us feel it because we see it, because we see you in all your glory through and in your Son, Jesus. Amen. So, I do have a message for you this morning. It comes straight from God through his apostle. And that is, be a person who rejoices always. Be a person who seeking to find your joy. Deep joy, not fleeting joy. Leisure, but deep-seated joy now in your life, in your pain, in your struggles, in your walk. To find your heart rejoicing always in the Lord. That's the message. But what's so helpful to commands is to see. Why? Why? And that's where we're going. So that's why we're sitting on just one verse this morning. The verb is used twice. Rejoice. They're both in the imperative mood. That is the mood of command. They're both present tense. Which means do this in this ongoing action. And what one is commanded to do by God is his or her duty to do. Rejoice simply means seek your joy in the Lord. simply means seek your joy in the Lord. This is not a peripheral idea in the Bible. It is central. Biblically joy is not the spin-off of obedience to God. It is obedience to God's command. Rejoice in the Lord. And so what I want to do is concisely as I can this morning is to summarize the essence of the gospel itself and show how the gospel saves sinners like us and gives to us everlasting joy. So that the command to every Christian rejoice in the Lord always will make sense. Makes sense to everyone who has personally experienced the Lord's joyful salvation. So what I'm going do, I'm going to spend like about two minutes. So just literally let the Word of God saturate you for a second. To just show you this is not peripheral in the Bible. Jesus said in John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you in order that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Paul writes in Romans 15, 13, May the God of all hope fill you with joy and peace in believing. Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. 2 Corinthians 1, 24. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy. Matthew 13, 44. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven, it's like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Psalm 43, 4. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God, my exceeding joy. Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. John 16, 22, Jesus told his beloved friends, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Psalm sixty seven four. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Psalm sixty six one. Shout for joy. To God. All the earth. Isaiah 51.11 And the ransomed. Of. The Lord. Shall return. And come to Zion. With singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain. Gladness. And joy. And sorrow. And sighing shall flee away. Matthew 25, 23, Jesus concluded the parable. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 4 Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. So, rejoicing is commanded of us. Because what is at stake in it is not. Just our joy. But God's glory is. If we do not find God as a source of real, real, eternal joy. Then he is dishonored. His glory is belittled. And therefore God commands our joy. Both for our joy. And for his glory. That right there. Is the underlying. Substructure. Of biblical theology. It flows from. In the beginning God. Created. To the end of revelation. And so. Briefly. And I mean it. Let you see it. These massive pillars of truth. There's six of them that I'll lay out. The first two are like this. God created everything that is not God. For his glory. Isaiah 43, 6 7. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. The second major pillar is this then. Every human being, the creature who has been created in the image of God, is to know that it is therefore their duty to live for His glory. Paul writes in First 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whether you eat, or whether you, whether you drink, or, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Now those two truths almost sound the same, but they're not. The difference is the first one, unveils God's design of creation it it unveils the reason he created or the purpose for creating is his glory the second one shows us what our duty is to our creator And to keep them separated and in their order is crucial for biblical clarity, for understanding reality itself. If we don't get this, then we probably will not see the gospel clearly. And it's precious. As it is. We might not want to say it to anybody, but deep down in, in the middle of the night, and you awake and you're in a twilight zone and you, you'll think the gruesome death of Christ is some kind of overreaction on God's part. The crucial point is that God is the source. He is the origin. He is the measure. He is the goal of all that is. entire realm of creation is therefore all about God and it it is at that foundational juncture why so many of us Christians feel the need to change the gospel's foundation from God to us Mankind, because the world of humanity, and every one of us as sinners knows it, is radically me-oriented. Radically, foundationally, man-centered. And that's why the gospel, the true gospel, is so hard for many to understand. It's. I, I remember during the emergent church. If any of you have any idea, that little fleeting thing that happened in like I don't know, 05, 06, 07. There were a number of these so-called evangelical voices calling the cross of Jesus cosmic child abuse. If. What Christians have believed for two thousand years is true of what happened on the cross. That's what happens when we say, "I'm going to readjust the foundation before I open the Bible to be an utterly man-centered and make it fit." This is why there will be more and more quote-unquote evangelical books on pro-homosexuality and pro-transgenderism. They're already there. There will be more. Look, this is why the gospel is so hard to understand. Because people approach it from a foundation that is not the foundation of the scripture and who God is. It is all about God. Not about us. God created us for his glory. Say that a different way. He created the universe and his masterpiece created in his own image mankind in order that he would be glorified as the treasure of their hearts. And thus, truth number two, it is the duty of every human being to live for the glory of God. So test yourselves for a moment. When, And you should. We should all say, because it's true. If you're in Christ, God, he, he loves me. The love of God has been shed abroad in my heart by the, by the Holy Spirit But when you say that, what what does it mean? Does the love of God to you mean that He sees you, recognizes you, and puts you at the center of His universe? He makes much of me. Is that what it means? Or does God's love for you Mean that he gives you everlasting joy at the cost of his son by making himself the center of your life forever. Those are the first two big, massive truths. You can summarize them this way God created us for our joy, and that is how he is glorifying. Himself. Then the next two biblical truths unfold in scripture with this. Number three, Adam sinned. And thus in him, we've all sinned. To say it a different way, a biblical way, is that in Adam and every one of us in action have failed to glorify God as we should. Turn over to Romans chapter 1 for a moment. Paul writes in Romans 1 verse 21 to 23 for although they, that's humanity, although they knew God, They did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But instead, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal god I want to return this please I don't like that and they exchanged the glory of god For images resembling the creature. Mortal man, birds, and animals, and creeping things. And thus Paul goes on to say in chapter 3. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's truth number 3. Which leads to... To the horror and the beauty of God's holiness in truth number four. The wages of sin is death. Or the way Paul said it in 2 Thessalonians nine. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. But again, these two truths could, if, if we're not careful on, on trying to be clear, we, we, you know, we can combine them and say, because all are sinners, thus we deserve God's condemnation. And if you don't say anything else about it, you could lose what's really happening in that statement. And that is this, that sin is not primarily, first and foremost, or foundationally about how we affect and sin against other creatures. Those are manifestations. Sin is foundationally And primarily about how we treated and treat God. Even our sin is not a man-centered issue. It is a God-centered issue. Sin at its core is to fall short of the glory of God. As Paul unfolded in chapter 1, meaning I don't like, want, or desire you. He is His own glory. I don't find it fulfilling. And thus we have all fallen short of glorifying God. Sin is first and foremost about how we treat God not first and foremost how we treat each other and that's huge because you know, let's just be honest, be honest with reality be honest with the world in which we live in, be honest with things that we say as Christians that you need to come to faith in Jesus or you're going to die and go to hell forever, really? make sense of that This is why the world turns its eyes. They can't see it. Everything is measured by their finiteness and their me-centeredness. We will never make sense of the horror of eternal hell, nor of the bloody cross of Christ if we don't feel the weight of our sin that at its core, it is an insult to God Himself. Sin is the ultimate outrage of the universe. And we must feel this if the terrible punishment of Gehenna, hell, punishment away from the glory Beauty, mercy of God forever and ever. We, we've got to grasp what sin is or hell itself. We won't sound with Christian when you say, it, but it you'll you'll go away knowing that is unjust. That's how you'll feel. We have all treated God with contempt. And his wrath is coming on us every human being's biggest problem which leads to the last two huge truths the gospel the good that's good news and that is this number 5 god sent his only son jesus to provide eternal life and eternal joy. Paul summarized it this way in 1 Timothy 1.15. Christ Jesus came into the world in order to save sinners. Truth six. The benefits of what Christ purchased on the cross by His death and His resurrection, they belong To those sinners who repent and trust him. Peter, what must we do to be saved? Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Repent, therefore, that your sins may be blotted out. Paul, Silas, the jailer, cries after midnight What what must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus. And you shall be saved. Now, again, we could really miss something when we combine those two together without clarity and say, look, so what's the remedy for my sin? And the the answer is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Okay, that's. and, And everyone going around the world thinks, you mean I'm going to hell because I refuse or I haven't saw what you see and I don't believe in Jesus. No! You're going to hell because you are a God belittler unrepentantly. And you will live in that forever. You're guilty. So when we say we want to know what we mean, oh, here's the answer, yeah, believe in the Lord Jesus. Don't explain that a little bit can easily be misinterpreted, thinking that my faith saves me. In other words, if you're a drowning person, you know you're drowning, and you cry out, I can't stop, help! And you get saved by the lifeguard and throws you the flotation device and and pulls you you in the cry for help didn't save you it got the attention of the life it connected you to the one who saved you christ did something to save us 2000 years ago Faith doesn't save you. Christ Jesus saves you. Faith is not the basis of our salvation. His death, His condemnation in our place for our condemnation is His perfect human righteousness in the place of our sin, and imperfection is. And His historical resurrection to validate what He did on the cross and to secure it for us and to secure our joy forever. That's what saves. To be a person who is a recipient of this great act is to be a person who understands the preciousness and the value, and the common sense, and the beauty of the command. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I, I will say it to you, believer. Rejoice. That's where Paul's coming from. So if we were to say to Paul, why do you command us to rejoice in the Lord Jesus? And then emphasize it by commanding it again. Why, Paul, Paul why do you rejoice? You're in prison right now writing this. He would answer something like this Tell you why I rejoice. Before my heavenly Father apprehended me on the road to Damascus, before He adopted me as His own, His holy, terrible wrath was upon me. John 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on Him. Paul would say, look, wrath remains on me and all of us human beings as long as there is no faith in Jesus. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 2. Verse 3, among whom we Christians, we all once, not anymore, we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and we were by nature children of. Wrath, just like the rest of mankind. So Paul would say, Oh, tell you why I'm rejoicing. My very nature made me a deserving child of God's wrath. My destiny was, well, in the way he said it in Second Thessalonians 1, 8 to 9. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. With his mighty angels. In flaming fire. Inflicting vengeance. On those who do not know God. On those who do not obey. The gospel. Of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the lord and from the glory of his might why you ask me paul says from prison Do I command you, believer, to rejoice? Why do I rejoice always? God was not my Father. He was my judge. He was my executioner. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. And the sentence of my judge was clear and terrifying. No one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God is Coming upon the sons of disobedience. And so Paul would say, Oh, out of that is where my command. Rejoice, believer. Stay in reality and rejoice. Because there's only one hope, and that is this that the infinite Wisdom of the one true and holy and without beginning eternal God. That if His wisdom would make a way for His perfect justice and holy wrath. To be removed because of His unbelievable love. By removing or satisfying that wrath justly so that i paul might become a child of mercy a child of his grace welcomed with his open arms into the enjoyment of god himself the father the son and the spirit known as his glory that he would Glorify himself through me, Paul. Yeah, I'm in prison. (laughs) But I mean it. Rejoice always. Again, I will say, Rejoice. That's the cross. After saying, in Ephesians 2, that all of us Christians were by nature children of wrath. You know the next words, right? Verse 4. But God. But God. Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. But don't ever and keep your ears open in the years and decades to come, young people. Because, quote, unquote, Christian voices and leaders will be denying how God did it more and more. He did it by His eternal Son becoming a human being in order to be a substitute. Bearing God's anger, perfect anger and wrath. And God, the Father, poured it out. On his eternal Son in his humanity. That is how God shows and can show without denying his own glory and holiness and justice, mercy and love forever. His Son came in order to be cursed. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law that condemned us by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that is hanged on pieces of wood. This is the gospel of our Lord. And so as I close then, in light of that, let's hear Paul as He is meant to be heard. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He doesn't mean walk out of here after church and go to the fellowship hall and know that other Christians are looking at you, so let me put a smile on my face because that's what we're supposed to do, right? And he doesn't mean any of that fake stuff. Paul means for us to take this command with all of your relational struggles with other people. like Euodia and Syntyche. He made for us to take your sickness or terminal illness, anxieties, fears, financial difficulties, your guilt, your sin. Take it all. Trust Jesus in the Gospel, in ultimate reality, while you cry or rejoice. There is a rejoicing in crying because He purchased an everlasting joy. For you, that's where it's rooted. It is finished. And we who have come to faith in Christ experience God's glory being reflected through our joy in Him. Again, it does not mean that there are not still many tears ahead or tragedies or sickness or death. There are. But the joy that a believer has in being with Jesus, through all that, his love for you. Protection of you and ushering you into the glory of the Master, that will never be broken. I just I'm gonna allow Paul to close here for us, then, and hear how he says that. What then shall we say to these? Things, and I will be audacious enough to say that Pastor Joe preached this morning about the cross, Christ, God's love. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us successfully? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect successfully? It is God Who justifies. (laughs) Who is to condemn? No one. Successfully. Because Christ Jesus is the one who died. And more than that, he was raised. Who was at the right hand of God. Who right this very moment intercedes for us. So who? Who? Who should separate us from the love of Christ? Should tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or a horrible famine, an economy utterly collapsed, or nakedness, or danger? Or if they put your head on a block and use a sword, shall that separate us from the love of Christ? Answer, verse 37, No! But in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I, Paul, am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things that are to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor nor, nor anything else in all creation, I am persuaded it will not be able to separate us from the love God has for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. And therefore, Philippians 4.4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let's pray. Father, we yearn to be more and more faithful in experiencing obedience to this deeply loving command of yours for us. And therefore, we together ask, do it all the more in our mortal lives to your glory